0: Another two scientists episode. Now normally what I do is launch straight into introducing our guest, but since very soon we'll be holding uh, our Taste of Science festival, I would like to let you know that if you'd like to go and question the scientists yourself in person, you'll have the opportunity to do so in various cities across the US. And you can find out more details at our website tasteofscience.org. Um, check out one of the 14 or 15 cities that are taking part and see if you can go and Find your own tree frog scientist. So on that note, I will say hello to our speaker this evening, who is Tegan McMahon. Thank you for joining us, Tegan.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful.
0: And actually, Tegan was one of our speakers at our festival last year. Yeah. How was that?
1: That was fantastic. It was such a cool experience to walk into a bar and just sit around and chat with people about what I do. And the questions I got were just awesome and unexpected I loved it.
0: Yeah it was very cool I I believe that you came along with some of your specimens.
1: Yeah I brought in a huge Cuban tree frog and fed her crickets and it was pretty awesome to watch this like crowd of adults like squealing with joy watching this frog eat it was pretty awesome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So um, before we launch into the actual research that you do can you tell us a little bit more about your background where you trained and how you ended up doing what you are?
1: Yeah, so I um, was born into a family of biologists, so I really had no chance of not going down this career path. Um, My mother is a a zoologist, trained zoologist. My father, a marine biologist. Uh, My brother is now a marine biologist, and I am an ecologist, so so that the apple does not fall far from the tree. And we grew up next to a botany professor, and so we spent all of our time as children running around in the woods with... um, ecology teachers telling us about what we were looking at so there was little chance I wasn't gonna do it <laughs> um, so I went to um, college in Maine and when I was there I actually my college advisor was a woman who started a program in Costa Rica that was to save um, basically little kids gave her pocket change and she donated that money to try to buy rainforest Um, in Costa Rica, and I had participated in that program as a little kid, so when I was seven I participated in it, happened to go to college where she was, I didn't realize it, I got randomly assigned to her, and Uh then working with her really influenced me a lot, and then I went to Costa Rica as a study abroad student, and went back and worked for that study abroad program for a few years after I graduated, so I spent a couple years living in Costa Rica, um, living in Monteverde, and running around with field ecologists teaching ecology, and then I decided I wanted to get a Ph.D., um, so I skipped over the master's um, mm-hmm. and came back to the U.S. and was, did my Ph.D. over at USF and study the effects of pesticides on amphibian communities and then sort of slowly moved into looking at um, some of the big epidemics and causing amphibian decline around the world, which is what I study now. Okay. Um, so after USF, I did a short postdoc there and then I've been at the University of Tampa for the last three years.
0: Okay. So if I were to be absolutely brutal about your research, why should we care about tree frogs?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so, there are so many, um, there's so many angles. So for me, they are, um, what I fell in love with as a little kid. There's this picture of me as a three-year-old picking up a toad and kissing this toad and i remember thinking like am i gonna get in
0: trouble for kissing this toad He didn't think he was gonna um, turn into a prince did you no <laughs> no i
1: just wanted to i just wanted to show the toad that i loved it which is like what a three-year-old does is to kiss it right i'm sure the toad was not into it but i mean that was those was organisms like frogs toads they were what totally drew me to the environment right so there's this argument that This is a group of animals that really does, for many people, they're charming, they're wonderful, they're cool-looking. If you think of the red-eyed tree frog, it's this sort of emblem for the rainforest, so um, there is that reason. There's um, a whole bunch of other things. They're really important for the economy. They are an important food source um, for humans around the world. They are farmed throughout the United States. And we are probably one of the, the on the lower end of consumers for frogs, but around the world, people eat them. They are also a really important resource in the environment. So they are one of the largest terrestrial biomass that gets consumed. So small um, rodents eat them, predatory birds eat them, um, even fish eat them, right? And they eat all of our pests for us. So they eat mosquito larvae, and they eat. Um, all sorts of detritus and stuff that's found in the ponds and help clear up ponds. So they are really, really important in the environment. They're what we would call a biological indicator species. So they also are, people use the phrase, the canary in the coal mines. It's the idea when their populations start to decline, that means something's going wrong in the environment. Um, Part of that is because they live on the land and they live in the water. So they're impacted both by the things that happen in a terrestrial space and the things that happen in the water. And then to even go further, they have a really similar immune system to humans. So they're a really important group to look at when you're looking at the effects of pesticides on um, the immune system. We can, have, we can kind of get an idea of what might our immune system might do or how our bodies might react by looking at how an amphibian's body reacts to a similar um, contaminant.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I didn't start thinking about this until we spoke to um, another one of our speakers a couple of months ago who is a, a neuroanatomist and he studies how the nerve system develops. And, you know, you always assume that the, the animals that we have, that people on, constantly think of as lab animals like mm-hmm. rats and mice and so on, they form the models for everything. And he actually also studies, so for some things, chickens are closer to humans. Right. So. Yeah, it's kind of cool to discover that there's a part of frogs that's actually closer to us than potentially other species.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They Their bodies respond with the same type of stress hormones that our bodies respond. They have really similar white blood cells, so all of the cells that are used for the immune system are the same between the two different groups.
0: Mm-hmm. But so. you study then um, fungal infections within the frogs specifically?
1: Yeah, so I, I study... Um, it's sort of funny because I study the impacts of the chytrid fungus, which is a fungus that's totally unique compared to other types of fungi out there. Um, It's got a little zoospore that swims around, and and normally fungus is spread by the wind or spread by water, and it just sort of floats and lands somewhere. Well, this particular thing swims after its host, finds it, burrows in under the skin, and then grows. Um, And it impacts amphibians, and for a really long time, because we started suddenly seeing um, amphibians dying off super rapidly these huge populations were gone in three weeks wow. um, species were gone the sometimes sometimes you know a week or two or sometimes be three or four months and all of a sudden that entire species is gone um, and so the chytrid fungus is associated with amphibians because we noticed that frogs were dying and then when we figured out they were dying from this fungus we we figured this was a an amphibian specialist meaning that's only eating amphibians mm-hmm. um, a lot of the work that I do now is actually looking at one how do we handle the infections in the wild and in terms of conservation um, but two what are the other things that the fungus lives on so even though I do a lot of work with this fungus that's impacting amphibians I actually look at it in non amphibian species
0: okay So, how exactly do you go about studying this?
1: Um, So, this fungus is, um, I mean, I say luckily, but sort of a strange way of putting it, but luckily we can grow it in the lab really easily. Um, There's, uh, we can basically keep it in a liquid broth. It's a really simple protein that it'll consume in broth. And so you can put it in this jar and give it food, put it in the fridge, and it will grow like that for months. We then can take it out and it's, um, because it is actively burrows into its host, we can just squirt it on the back of a frog and it will actively burrow into the skin of the frog. Um, If we're studying the fungus infection in an aquatic animal, so something like a crayfish, which is um, living in water, we just squirt it into the water and the fungus does its own thing where it looks, searches out the host and will actively infect them.
0: Wow, that's terrifying.
1: Yeah, um, there was a, a dude who did work on humans, and you cannot grow it on humans, so that's at least yay? a nice thing. Yeah, yay, I guess. <laughs> um, but for a long time, it was thought to only grow on amphibians, and we're finding that that's just not true, that it grows on all sorts of things.
0: Okay. We'd, With your research, presumably, you're looking for a way to kind of kill off this fungus? to Realistically? If it, presumably, if it kills the animals that fast, you need right. to be able to kill it before you try and treat an animal because that doesn't seem like a viable way to get rid of it.
1: Yeah, uh, realistically we're not going to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. There is no way um, that I can think of that that is going to effectively get rid of it. So there's been a lot of um, folks who proposed like spraying a fungicide, so a chemical that would kill the fungus, um, into a pond and trying to kill it off that way. The problem Mm -hmm. is that a lot of times that kills off many of the other things in the pond And for some reason, um, a lot of times, it doesn't kill this particular fungus.
0: Okay.
1: So you can't really get rid of it using chemicals the way we might have in the past. Um, It's now we found that it lives on all sorts of other hosts. So some of my PhD work, we figured out that it lived on crayfish. And so we went to Louisiana, for example. And during part of the year, the frogs have this fungus. And during part of the year, they're actually able to um, kill it off. So they, oh, okay. don't, they kind of go back and forth between having it and not having it. Mm-hmm. During the time of year when they don't have it, we found it really strong um, in crayfish. Right. So crayfish act as this reservoir host maintaining the fungus during the time of year the amphibians don't have it. And then the amphibians burrow down. A lot of them will go down into the crayfish burrows. They then collect the fungus again on their skin. They come back out, and now they have the fungus in their skin again. Um, so there's really no chance that we're going to get rid of it unless we get rid of all of these other alternative posts which is not a reasonable idea okay
0: <laughs> so then what you try and control it or what's, um what's the the goal with your research i think i'm trying to ask
1: yeah so we're, my research is trying to ask questions that help um inform management plans we don't have in my opinion a great um plan or idea of what to do, and we're still in a phase of asking lots of questions. Um, It's a really complicated system. It's a fungus that kills off some populations super fast. Other populations, like bullfrogs, can live with it for their entire lives, no problem. And so they're what we call like super shedders. So they have the fungus and they're releasing it all the time, and so if you have bullfrogs in a pond, that pond's going to be totally loaded up with this fungus potentially. And then any other amphibian population that comes in is going to get it. Um, so it becomes super, super complicated when you try to think about management. Mm-hmm. Some of the work we've done more recently is to look to see if we can actually induce what we call acquired resistance. And it's almost like the idea of vaccination. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I said, when we infect the frogs, we just squirt it on their back. They have really poor skin. Um, I sort of think of it like the skin of your tongue, right? So yeah. it's It absorbs things really easily. So, we figured out that you can just take dead fungus, so it's no longer going to cause an infection, and squirt it on the frog's back. And over time, given multiple exposures to it, the amphibians actually build a, a resistance to the fungus. And they don't, when they're exposed to the live fungus, the infection's much lower. Okay. So, it's possible that you could, in theory, vaccinate these frogs. Um, by exposing them to dead fungus repeatedly, it's that's still gonna. We still have like a ton more work to do to figure out if that's actually viable. Like, can you do that in huge, vast ponds? We mm-hmm. have no idea. Can you just flood a pond with the dead fungus? Mm-hmm. Um, is that gonna be enough to induce this response? We yeah. don't know. Does that impact anything else in the mm-hmm. ponds? We don't know. Yeah. Um, so we're now asking a lot of those questions.
0: Okay. So how widespread an issue is this? Like, you were talking about Louisiana, so obviously there are local areas where um, the animals are impacted around here.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely all over the world. I think is the only place that we're pretty confident it's not found. Wow. Um, but there's also no frogs there, yeah. and we haven't, <laughs> we haven't looked at any of the other groups, so who really knows, right? Um, it's found all over the world, and it is, There's sort of two debates out there is whether it is um has always been everywhere and suddenly with global change climate change and things we're seeing um a shift in the environment that's allowing it to now be really pathogenic Mm -hmm. um or the other idea is that humans are spreading it around Mm -hmm. um either way it's all over the world um many populations i would dare to say most populations have been exposed to it. Some have dealt with it really well, Mm -hmm. um, and others have been completely wiped out. There's a a group called um, Adelopis. So they're throughout um, Central and South America. Mm -hmm. And I think it's 70-something, 76 out of the 110 species have gone extinct because of this fungus.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And there are groups, it's really cool, there are groups that when they realized they were going extinct they started tracking where the fungus was and they started pulling um, the last few adults and keeping them in captivity. So the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute maintains them. They clear them of the fungus and they're surviving in captivity and their hope is to be able to re-release them.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, But we can't do that until we figure out a way to do that safely.
0: Yeah, yeah. And potentially, I mean, you don't know if you're ever going to be able to do anything about that.
1: We don't. Absolutely, yeah. Um, One of the things that's amazing and wonderful is that there's evidence that a bunch of populations that we thought are extinct are coming back. Oh, okay. So um, a few years ago, I was in Costa Rica with um, a man named Mark Wainwright. He's a British naturalist, so he's a self-taught naturalist. Actually, his main career was to do the illustration guides, so, like, field guides for Mm. Costa Rica. But he does a lot of guiding around Costa Rica as well, and I used to just sort of... Um, follow him around in the jungle and one day he suddenly like froze and just ran and I was like okay if your guide runs you run with them like he didn't say anything he just ran into the middle of the jungle and it was like completely off the path he's climbing over things all I can think about is the snakes the things that I'm supposed to be really acutely avoiding Uh Um, but he was going for it so I went with him there's no way I could get myself out anyway I lost him and he grabs this little frog and he turns it over and he look, shows it to me and he's like this frog is thought to be extinct and so he had heard it from a distance and he had been he's you know so well known in that area for having such a vast knowledge of these amphibians uh-huh. heard it from a distance and just took off and was going to find it it was one lone male calling but that means that they're there mm-hmm. um so we took a ton of pictures of it and then put it back and we stood there and watched it for a really long time because we were really excited about it <laughs> um but it's sort of this you never get to see the positive side you in this research you're always like well and then this kills it and that kills it and this is really sad yeah. and this is really frustrating so that yeah. was one of those moments I hold on to when I'm frustrated because they're coming back nature yeah. is really resilient and these populations that are knocked way back there are a few that might few individuals might be resistant and they're now just starting to sort of creep back
0: yeah so, oh. it, I'm just wondering in general for the animals that we think have gone extinct, how do we know that for absolutely sure? I mean, no, we don't. We don't.
1: Yeah, um, in order for an animal to be extinct, my honest is, I don't remember exactly, it's eight to 14 years, something like that. You have to okay. go for that long without seeing it in the wild. Okay. Um, there are a lot of um, diehards in Monterrey, Costa Rica that hold on to the idea that, for example, the golden toad, which is this sort of emblem of Monteverde, Costa Rica, Mm -hmm. this beautiful bright orange toad that's super weird looking and with these explosive breeders, there'd be hundreds, and the hundreds would come out and breed all over the trails. They went extinct essentially in one season. There were hundreds one year, the next year there was one male. Oh wow. And then they never saw them again. And people go out to this day, 20 years later, during their breeding season, every single day, looking for them, because they're sure they're there. maybe they are we don't even with the the vast number of scientists out there we don't spend that much time culling the rainforest for these species Mm -hmm. um you know and oftentimes you know when you're hearing things or seeing things you're not necessarily acutely listening for something that you expect you know died off so it's totally possible that they're there and that they're in these really remote places that we just don't see
0: i guess this is where you need citizen scientists to Kind of do this for fun mm-hmm. because it's it's literally just a passion. They don't have to apply for grants at any stage. Right.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> hard to convince somebody to let you go out into the jungle and look for something that is we thought was dead or has been dead for the last fifteen years. <laughs> nobody's yeah. nobody's gonna pay for that. Yeah. But um, in a place like Monterrey, half the town are scientists. Mm-hmm. A lot of them. It's like you know the bookstore is run by a scientist for a really long time and things like that. And so
0: wow. Very cool. So Arturo would like to know, for newbies and the eco-curious, what's a good book or movie or documentary to start with?
1: Oh man, um, I guess it sort of depends. Are you looking for uh, the education side, or the inspiration side? <laughs> maybe maybe a little bit of both. Um, I recently just watched Racing Extinction, which is um, a documentary that really highlights sort of a a handful of avenues of what's happening right now. And it highlights that we are still racing towards these mass extinction events, um, despite really progressive, positive, environmentally friendly policy, um, that that we're still seeing really mass die-offs in a a huge proportion of our populations. Um, Everything from um, amphibians, which is what I study, but also to things like um, our insect groups, which are major pollinators for us um they also highlight some of the ways that we can sort of broadcast this information in a really positive way so there's um a national geographic photographer who's going out and uh, taking photographs of these incredible super unique weird species that are about to die off in the wild and putting them out there and giving them sort of a face and an image for the public to see um and it talks about ways that we can educate that are not necessarily through traditional paths, which I think is a really important message for sure.
0: We have a question from Jill, which is, that anyone who's been to Puerto Rico has heard the coqui frogs. How did they become so invasive?
1: So, coqui frogs are part of this group, um, and there are different ones within the cookies, but they're part of a group that are um, don't really need huge masses amounts of water. Like the average, the average frog life cycle, they lay eggs in um, a pond or a body of water. The eggs turn into tadpoles, swim around that pond. They then hatch out and come up onto land. For groups like the coqui, many of them are able to actually lay their egg in a pot, and then they develop inside the egg in the pot. And then they hatch out. So they never need to actually go to water for it. Hmm. Um, And not all of them can do that. Not all the cookies do that, but uh, but some of the group does. Then the trouble is because they're in potted soil, they're often found in, um, like we have a group here that's really similar that we call the greenhouse frogs. um, And it's because they're found throughout greenhouses because they love potted soil. So when Uh we sell plants from, take plants from Puerto Rico or from anywhere in Central America, we're bringing those animals that are in the pots with them. Oh. Um, and then, somewhere like Florida, like, Florida's just beautiful, it's easy, it doesn't get too hot, it doesn't get too cold. Um, and we don't spend an extreme amount of time exterminating these invasive species, so they end up being able to take hold.
0: Okay. It's a bit like the, the crazy boas. Is it boa constrictors that are in the, the swamps in the south? So we,
1: yeah, we have pythons and pythons, some boa constrictors yeah. as well. Yeah, Yeah, and the problem is once they're they're there, those animals are made to blend in, right? Yeah. There's a heck of a lot of evolution that went into making them hide. Quite. And so they're really hard to find.
0: Yeah. There are no natural predators, and so they just keep breeding.
1: Yeah, and so they not only get around to having natural predators, but when they come to a new place, they get around having um, a relief from all of their disease, too, Mm. right? All the parasites and the diseases that came from where they were are now often not in the new place so they're suddenly way healthier they don't have to put a bunch of resources into fighting disease and they can put all the rest of their resource into eating and reproducing
0: Tom would like to know uh, if there are environmental stresses that contribute to the spread of this fungus in frogs and are they man-made?
1: Yeah, absolutely Um, there are non-man-made issues and man-made issues that go with it Um, one of the big issues with any disease is um, if you were exposed to multiple stressors at the same time your body can't handle the disease as well so amphibians spend a good portion of their development in pond water and if they are exposed to things like agrochemical um, or agrochemicals in general um, pesticides though when the rain comes down and hits the um, farm fields it washes all the chemicals off the farm into the ponds that are around there so they're now exposed to these chemicals those chemicals reduce their immune system and that basically reduces their ability to handle the disease Um, so that's one major issue another is that we've reduced habitat really dramatically Mm -hmm. Um, and we have encroached upon their habitat so we've walked into the forest with boots covered in the fungus and brought it in um, you know and on, the story no one wants to, to tell is that I'm sure scientists have done this right mm-hmm. When you want to go in and investigate it before we understood how the process worked it's really easy to bring that in with you um, when I lived in Costa Rica I talked to a lot of farmers who would take um, crayfish and they put them into Gatorade bottles and then they would take those Gatorade bottles to the top of the stream at the top of the mountain and they dump them up at the very top because the Mm -hmm. idea is that if they see the top of the stream within a year or two the entire stream will be filled with crayfish Uh and now we know that the crayfish is a um, host for this fungus and so even if the fungus wasn't there originally now it's got a host and it's there.
0: Okay so he also asks um, well He says, you mentioned uh, that there are management plans. So who manages the frogs?
1: (laughs) It really depends on where you are. Um, In this area, you have to ask um, like fish and wildlife if you want to go out and collect frogs. Um, Any work that I do, I do with invasive species. And the idea there is that, we're pulling anything out of the environment we're pulling out invasive species which are already doing harm but if you want to do any work with frogs or if you're doing any collecting with frogs you have to ask fish and wildlife for permits to do that Um, and then there are a lot of policies for our waterways which are um, managed by small local groups as well as groups like the environmental protection agency things like that um, if you're in Central America, a lot of the protection comes from groups like the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute mm-hmm. um, or smaller university groups or like in Monteverdi, much of their land is managed by private conservation groups that are managed by the people in the town that actually live there. So it's really local effort.
0: David tweeted us, you made a good point explaining why we should care about amphibian research. But is that the reason you do research on them?
1: Um, the reason I do research on them is because I am driven by an inner love for the environment and for amphibians. I mean, I can I can justify doing the research from the economic standpoint and from the um, sort of scientific standpoint. But my my drive is the fact that I love it and I love the environment, and they're a really great way to ask what's going wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, is by looking at this particular group and it gives us a lot of information about what's happening in the environment if we look at them.
0: Okay, and he also asks, what makes Costa Rica such a mecca for amphibian research compared to places like Florida where you're based?
1: So I do a lot of research in both places, for sure. And I'm in Florida because I can do work with amphibians all year round. Places like Costa Rica and um, Panama, which is where I do most of my tropical research, are filled with this diversity of amphibians that is just far surpasses Florida. Um, in addition to that, there are already groups established there that do a lot of conservation work. And all the research I do is conservation-minded. Um, so asking questions for the, the point of the answer is, uh, is wonderful and really important, and we've gotten a ton of information that way in science. But everything I do, I try to make sure has a really strong conservation and management influence to it, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, And groups like the Smithsonian in Panama have been really incredible with funding um, some of my research and facilitating research. I have a lot of collaborators that are down there and it's great to work with them because I can, um, there's a man who's at the Smithsonian, Roberto Ibanez, I can go to Roberto and he'll just walk me into the jungle and say, oh, okay, so right off this you know we're going to take a right at the boulder and down this and you're going to take a left at that big tree and here is this population of glass frogs Mm -hmm. you know there's no way that i could wander around the rainforest and find that myself yeah yeah the folks that are there that are living there that are just so entrenched in that system know it really really
0: well Mm -hmm. another one of our turos um so he's he asks are all extinctions bad oh that's
1: a really hard question um I would argue all extinctions are bad, and it's hard for me to say if all extirpations are bad, which would be a localized extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, the overall extinction of any species reduces biodiversity, and it has been well shown that biodiversity equals stability. Mm-hmm. I have had a lot of people ask about whether you know losing a particular group in a particular area is really bad, and I would say most of the time absolutely mm-hmm. we don't really have a great understanding of everything that they do and we don't have a great understanding of all of the sort of interconnected pieces in the environment so mm-hmm. people always want to get rid of things like mosquitoes right mosquitoes yep. are one of the most important um base food items out there mm-hmm. they feed our fish they feed our amphibians um and then and many more things than that. And then that leads up the trophic level to these things that are absolutely incredible, like bald eagles, right? Which people fly around the world to see these really beautiful organisms that we treasure without the base of the food web, We don't have those, those larger, bigger organisms.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So while we're squatting them away in Florida, we have to remember that they're important for other things.
1: Absolutely. And realistically, the ones that we hate so much, um, are not the ones that are found out in the environment, which is often where yeah. we spray for them, right? We're spraying the ponds, and the ones that bite us are the ones that grow in our backyards in the little puddles and things that we should be dumping anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so given that you you know, your parents, you said also biologists, and they've studied these kinds of things, do you think the frog world is changing faster now, or do we not know that? Yeah,
1: I mean... So, I mean, I can sort of answer in with with the two different parts. That one, mm-hmm. the frog world is absolutely changing faster now. Um, and only in the last year have we seen um, maybe some sort of hints of a positive message coming out with some of the populations coming back. Um, from my family's perspective, um, you know, we, we spent most of my childhood um, living really simply and then traveling around the world. And my... We would. My parents were really into photography, so we would spend a lot of time photographing things. So not only were they biologists, but they spent a lot of times like very much just sitting in a pond, um, waiting for things to happen. And that's how I spent my childhood. So by the time I was like five or six, I could identify the difference between salamander tadpoles and all the different species of frog tadpoles in my um, where I grew up. And. Doing that as a little kid, when I go back to those same areas, uh, my mother and I just went hiking um, this past fall in the same area, and we were she was talking about the fact that there's the same species are just not there. There's only two species left in the state park that's right next to my house. Oh wow. um, That we used to have there were six when I was young, and now there's two. And it's possible the others are, are there, but you know I, what? She watches that stuff. She goes out every. Spring and she looks at them and and checks out where the different populations are and they're just not there anymore. Um, and that's sort of that citizen science thing. My parents have both now moved into medicine, but they still spend an extreme amount of time out in the environment around them. That's really nice. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I I didn't realize that I grew up in like a weird family. Like I realize now looking back at it that like we were that family like. My mother brought home roadkill, um, and we dissected it at the kitchen table. Um, my father, had one rule, we were not allowed to have snakes in the house. But other than that, we had we grew up with um, frogs and lizards, and we took all the weird animals that nobody wanted at the humane society, and those just became our pets. And we spent like all of the first pictures of me as a little kid are me strapped to my dad's back in a backpack carrier, and we just they just took us hiking, and I'm. I'd like to think that it was like to teach my brother and I about the environment, but I think that they were just so driven to be out in the environment and, and they just were determined to take these little kids with them. And then they produced two ecologists. So. Well, there you go. <laughs> right.
0: Well, so you'd probably get on very well with Joel Brown. He's very similar in terms of his love for animals, except his pet is the squirrel. Yeah. Like, he's got a thing for squirrels. <laughs> Etienne asks us, when did the first frogs appear on Earth, and have they changed a lot since?
1: Oh, man. This is like, so what's, what's funny about this is this is basically the question that my I had on my dissertation defense that I didn't oh, wow. answer correctly. And my answer was, because one of the guys in my that did my defense was an evolutionary biologist, and he studied the evolution of frogs. And I just looked at him, and I was like, I don't know but I know who to ask. (laughs) Man, I really should know when the first frog appeared. The first sort of amphibious group, though, is this group that came, um, they were fish-like organisms, and they moved up onto land by slowly developing more and more bony, um, sort of articulating fins. And so they probably hung out, that group probably hung out at the edge of the pond for a while and then would stay in the water. And then slowly it became an... You know, more advantageous to get up on the land. There's lots of other food sources. Um, that group then split into basically all of the terrestrial groups that we have. And so we've seen them change really, really dramatically over time. Um, but man, I should really know exactly when it was.
0: Wah, wah. Right?
1: <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Mushinsky
0: on that note, though, thank you so much for coming out to speak to us this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This has yes. been wonderful.
0: Far more enlightened about frogs. I think. <laughs> That's
1: great. job there was basically to take students out into the jungle and to find things and show them things so there's this spot in um corcovado which is this absolutely incredible rainforest and we're about six hours from any town and i had taken the students um across this little stream and the stream went from the jungle out into open ocean and when we went over the water was maybe ankle high. We went looking for red-eyed tree frogs and there's this super awesome huge frog um, that they call the Central American Bullfrog. And if you catch it, it screams like a baby, right? (laughs) So it's this like wonderful thing to get. One, it's huge, so it's like nearly impossible to grab with two hands. It's like a group effort. But when you catch it, it screams. So the students then all scream. It's really fun to get to not warn them about that. (laughs) man it's like a... it's like this horrible ragged noise it's terrifying it's funny but doing it I feel like Ugh. so we got over there we had a great time we found tons of frogs and it started raining um, and in the tropics it's it goes to torrential downpour that is unbelievable and unbearable so it started raining and we went to go back because I suddenly realized if it's going to rain this heavily, getting back across that little ankle-high stream might become an issue. Mm-hmm. So we got up to the stream. I've got 30 students with me and my um, the other TA. We've got two huge flashlights, and everyone's got their little flashlights, and I've got this big bag worth of gear and stuff. And I send um, the guy that I work with over first that way we have a flashlight on one side and a flashlight on the other side. Mm -hmm. The water had gone up to like you had to swim across kind of depth, you couldn't touch the bottom in the middle. We then start sending students across and they're swimming across and it's totally fine. And I've got um, this bag with a bunch of camera gear that I'm about to go and I'm holding it on top of my head. Um, I'm not a graceful human. So this is an experience for me to try to balance this bag on my head and the flashlight um to go over and i hear everybody getting really nervous i hear my my um work partner he's just like um hmm i i mm," i'm like oh no if he doesn't even want to tell me this is really bad he's like i think you need to swim faster it's like okay so i'm swimming faster and i look over where their lights are and there's two sets of crocodile eyes and these crocodiles are like 12 13 foot crocodiles these could eat me so quickly it's this like moment of like do you just start do you float and pretend to be like dead or do you continue to swim and so i went with the continue to swim and around that time they disappeared under the water And I just, to date, have this like pit in the bottom of my stomach every time I think about it. They went under the water they never came back up. I got out of the water and they came up about a foot behind me. And I was just like, all I could think of the fact that I sent 30 students ahead of me into the like, all of which swam just gracefully across in front of these huge, huge crocodiles.
0: Just been listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at two s c i s facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in